Awesome. Well, the reason that I'm holding the handheld microphone is because this is, these are always my favorite weeks, is when we have a guest preacher coming in to bring the word. And so this morning we have my favorite guest preacher, who is Perry Marshall. Um, for those of you that don't know Perry, it's kind of like when you meet your parents' siblings and you're like, oh, that, you explain a lot for why my parents are the way that they are. And so Perry is kind of like that uncle that we've had. who uh, He has shaped so many things. Not that uncle that's making you laugh, not the weird uncle. He's like the awesome uncle that you look up to. But uh, So Perry and Katie and their family were a part of our church from the, almost the very beginning. Uh, um, and the, when we first started, I was the only one doing the preaching. And then Perry was a friend from seminary, and he came in and, and, and would, would preach for us regularly. And it was just such a, a blessing to our church to be shaped by the preaching of the word through through Perry's ministry, uh, and then he served as an elder in the beginning as well. He's one of our first elders for a number of years before he took a job up in Boulder when he and Katie and the kids moved up there. I say the kids are, are here as well. They're not so little kids anymore, though. They're growing up after all this time. So, so Perry, we're grateful to have you preaching for us. Um, I'm going to do the scripture reading, so if you would mind joining me in standing, I will read the word of God together, and then Perry will come preach for us. This is from Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 to 12, and then again, verses 18 to 20. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then down in verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. This is God's word. It is true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated. All right, are we on? There we go. Crazy Uncle Perry here to preach for you. That's great. No, it is truly a blessing to be able to come back like this and see some familiar faces and see a lot of new faces, see a lot of kids that have sprouted up in elevation, which is really cool too. Um, We are in a series in the book of James in the church that I'm in. So that's what I'm going to be preaching out of this morning. I know you've been in a series in the book of Acts, and so I'm kind of interrupting that. Just, you know, standard fare when you are the guest preacher. You just, you never know what they're going to bring. But that's where we're going to be this morning. And um, we're going to see some things that I think are very central to the Christian life. What it means to follow Christ. What it means to walk faithfully with the Lord. And along the way, maybe feel the conviction of God's Spirit, too, because it's an area that we all struggle with. So let's get into it. Back in the summer of 2020, hundreds of lives were endangered on a runway just outside of Paris, France. Charles de Gaulle Airport, like a lot of international hubs, has parallel runways, runways that are pointed the same direction, oriented the same way, but that are far enough apart from each other so they can both be used simultaneously. On this particular day, the left runway was being used for arriving flights, inbound flights to land, and the right runway was being used for departing flights to take off. There was an inbound Boeing 787 from Newark, New Jersey that was on its way to land at the airport. And meanwhile, about the same time, an Airbus 320 was on its way to Spain. There's nothing unusual about any of that except for one thing. The air traffic controller for that inbound flight from Newark had instructed the pilots to land on the right runway. 
The pilots quickly realize this, that there's an airplane right in the very spot where they're going to be landing in just a few seconds. They radioed the control tower. The control tower instructed them to abort the landing, which they did, but not before the two planes came within 300 feet of each other. The media caught a hold of this story, and they presented it as the air traffic controller's slip of the tongue. I would imagine we don't have to think very hard this morning to think of a time where we've had our own slip of the tongue. Something that we wish we would have said differently or not said at all. Maybe it was a long time ago in your past and you still think about it today. Or maybe it was on your way to church this morning. You had your own slip of the tongue. What we're going to see this morning is that God's word has a lot to say about everything that we say. And we will see that in James chapter 3. So I'd invite you, go ahead and turn there if you have your Bible or have your device. Go ahead and scroll there. Now, James is writing to what he calls the 12 tribes of the dispersion. If you think back to the book of Acts and you think about like that episode where Stephen is martyred. And then it says that the Christians in Jerusalem scattered. That might be kind of a parallel to what James is talking about when he's addressing the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Not literally the 12 tribes of Israel, but probably a lot of Jewish Christians who had been scattered throughout the region of Palestine. James is writing maybe in the 40s, so not long after those events would have taken place. And James is addressing them about all kinds of issues and matters of life about what it looks to be faithful to following Christ. But one of those areas is definitely the area of our speech. So as we get into chapter 3, we should realize one thing. James has been kind of dripping this in throughout the book as he's gone already. I'll just give you a few examples of that. So James said in chapter 1, verse 19, he said, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It's this radical advice that we should listen before we speak. And then just a few verses later, verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We should be good listeners, but if we're only listeners, we can actually deceive our hearts. Because we fill our minds with information and knowledge about what it means to follow Christ, about who God is. But if we don't act on those things, we are in danger of just being self-deceived. That's a danger of our gathering this morning. That we could just sit here, fill our minds with information, and then just think, well, surely we're pleasing to God because we know all this stuff. But James is saying, no, 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 you have to put those, those things into action. Be doers of the word. And then down a few verses later, verse 26, James says, if anyone thinks he is religious, and he's talking about religion in the best idea or form of the word possible, what we can do to please God, what we can do to live a life that is the kind of life we should live in response to God's grace. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. What we see is that our tongue needs a bridle if our religion is going to be worthy. So that's the setup this morning for chapter 3 where we're going to start off. Let's get there to the text. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, 
Abel also, and here's that word again, to bridle his whole body. But James starts off by talking about not many should become teachers. Why would he say that? Possibly because a lot of people who he's writing to wanted to become teachers. Why would people want to become teachers, though? A teacher stands up in front of people and presumably has something worth listening to. A teacher is somebody who has a platform, somebody who has a level of authority or even prestige. In James's day, many of the people he's writing to were very, very poor. Not only just financially, but poor in terms of their social status. Being a teacher could be a way to climb the social ladder. But like any ladder, there are some occupational hazards involved. In this case, James says, for we, that, that teachers will be judged with greater strictness. Back in Luke 12, Jesus had said that to whom much is given, much will be required. A teacher stands up in front of people, and if you're standing up in front of people proclaiming the word of God, there's a lot at stake. When you say, thus saith the Lord, and James is just saying, like that air traffic controller who has hundreds of lives who depend on their own words, A teacher stands up in front of people, and when we proclaim the word of God to to others, there's a lot at stake, too. Eternal destinies can be at stake in a preacher's word, in a teacher's mouth. So James is hitting at this point that so much is at stake, and then he says right after that, for we all stumble in many ways. The occupational hazard of the teacher is speaking, and we all stumble in so many ways. We don't have to think about that too hard this morning because we can think of all kinds of examples of our own lives. Whoa, I won't do that again. Our own lives, we can think about, we all stumble in many ways, right? And we also can think about the way people around us have also stumbled and fallen flat on their faces. So we know this. We know this to be true about our lives. So we could just say at this point, okay, no problem. I don't want to be a teacher. I'm not called to be a teacher. I shouldn't be a teacher. But not so fast, because James is about to expand the the category of who he's talking to this morning when he says, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We all stumble. But if somebody did not stumble in what they said, they could control everything else. Think about how impulsive our language can be. Think about how easily our words can get us into trouble and how easily our actions can just follow our own words. That's what James is getting at. We all stumble in many, many ways. And he illustrates this point through a couple of different ways. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses... We can control their whole bodies. We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. A horse can weigh easily over a thousand pounds and has a will of its own, has a mind of its own. Yet the pressure of that little bit inside of its mouth is enough to turn it from one direction to the other. It's enough to restrain it. The deflections of that small surface in the water from the right or the left, even though a ship is buffeted by the winds and the waves of the sea, that small rudder is enough to point the ship one direction or the other. 
And James is saying that like that, like those small little instruments, the tongue is small, yet it boasts of great things. Now we could read that at the beginning of verse 5 there and say, yep, there goes the tongue again, just boasting with no good reason. But we could also read that and say, yeah, it's actually true. The tongue has immense power in our lives. In fact, think about your own life for just a minute. Think about examples where maybe somebody has spoken a word to you that's made a huge difference. Maybe there was a teacher who saw some potential in you and encouraged you to take a course of action that you didn't even think was possible in your life. Maybe there's somebody in your family who was encouraging towards some goal or initiative that you ended up stepping out into. Maybe there's a supervisor at work who said, I've I've been watching you, and I've noticed the way that others look up to you, how they want to follow your example. There's a new position open. It's greater responsibility, but I think you've got what it takes. Those kind of words can change the direction of our lives. And out of all people, we in the church should be the ones who know the power of words. right? We believe in a God who spoke the creation into existence. We believe in a God who revealed his law through the spoken word. Maybe in the church we've experienced a situation where somebody issued a warning to us, a rebuke in our lives, and that ended up being life-giving to us because we were on a course that was leading to destruction. But somebody corrected us, they loved us enough, they cared enough to call it out, and they changed our life forever. The small tongue has a great impact, has a great power. But because it's so powerful, the unbridled tongue is a great problem. Let's pick back up in the second half of verse 5. James says this, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. I wish we could think about another kind of illustration this morning Besides a fire, Katie and I and our family lived here in town when the Waldo Canyon fire was going on. We lived here during the Black Forest fire. And now, most recently, we've lived up in the Boulder area during the Marshall fire. The kind of devastation that a fire unleashes is unlike anything else. I got to be a part of a group of other people from the church to go and help sift through some of the ashes just a couple months ago after the Marshall Fire. We sifted through a person's house. This three-dimensional beautiful structure was reduced down to two dimensions, and we sifted through the ash trying to find some valuables that they could only estimate where they had landed because they were up on the top floor of the home, and of course everything just fell down. It's amazing to see what a fire does to a steel I-beam that used to support the house that's now just warped and bent out of recognition. Everything is reduced down to just this blob of plastic and glass and tile. And so many things are just just vaporized. It's the destruction of a fire. And James says that the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue can unleash this great kind of damage. There's no putting the spark back into the match. There's no putting the ember back into the campfire. And James says that this damage that's caused by the tongue is unlike anything else. 
If you've been following the headlines recently, then maybe you've seen the headlines around the social media company Twitter. One of the headlines related to Twitter recently has been that Twitter is developing now an edit feature for a tweet. Up until now, the only thing you could do was delete the tweet that you had already sent out earlier and maybe follow it up with a quick apology or an explanation of what I really meant to say was this, or I'm sorry if you were offended by what I said. Why would they need an edit button? Because the tongue is a fire. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small tweet or text or email, or any other social media post, or any other little word that comes out of our mouth. Don't you wish there was an edit button for life where we could just take back a comment that we made, or maybe change the tone of how we said something? The tongue unleashes this great power, and once it does, there's no undoing the destruction. James continues on now, and he says that it's a world of unrighteousness, but it sets on fire the entire course of life. It's like James is pointing to this ever-expanding just scope of the damage and destructiveness that the tongue can do. Back over 60 years, now, years ago now, Edward Lorenz was a meteorologist researcher at MIT, and he was conducting some weather simulation experiments. And he had a variable that he was working with that was six decimal places of accuracy. And he just rounded it off to three decimal places of accuracy, to the thousandths place. And he thought, I wonder what would happen if I ran it with just this little less precise number than what I had before. He went to go get a cup of coffee, and when he came back and he saw the results, he was blown away by what he saw. Because he could tell that the next two months of weather that had been forecasted by this simulation were radically different than anything else that he had seen before. This minor change had led to a huge difference in the output. And he called it the butterfly effect. Maybe you've heard about it. And he said, with this question, he kind of explained the theory, and he said, does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil cause a tornado in Texas? We might say, does the flap of a person's mouth in Colorado Springs cause this great destructive outcome in our families or in our churches, wherever we might go? There's this cascading effect of unpredictable consequences to what we say. Just a small thing can unleash great damage. Think about a family reunion where maybe there's a segment of your family that doesn't talk to another segment of your family. And you don't even know why, but then you find out from your grandparents or maybe your parents that years ago, somebody spoke a word to somebody else and it led to such an offense that there was a wedge driven between those different parts of the family and nobody talks to each other anymore. Think about a church where maybe just a word of gossip or a little word of slander ended up dividing a congregation. And the fallout from that division in the church was beyond what anybody could predict. That's the world of unrighteousness, the butterfly effect of our words. And such damage can only have its source in one place. That's where James goes next. He says that it is set on fire by 
hell. This is a key point. This is a key point. We might just think that our words are just sound waves that just travel through the air, that bounce off of our eardrum and register as a thought in our mind. But what James is getting at is that our words actually have a source. Our words have an origin that is spiritual. Our words can either be from hell or they can be from heaven. They can be life-giving or they can be life-taking. The word hell is the word Gehenna. It was a valley located outside of Jerusalem, a place of child sacrifice, a place of evil, a place associated with God's judgment. And James is saying that that tongue that causes such fire, that causes such destructiveness, is itself set on fire by hell. Think of the words that are coming out of your own mouth. What is the origin of those words? Are they of God or are they not of God? Are they things that are breathing life into other people, that are uplifting, that are encouraging other people? Or are they words that are tearing other people down? See, our words are actually a spiritual matter. They're not just this thing that's disconnected from the rest of our faith or the rest of our life with Christ. But our words go right back to that very source of whether we are being doers of the word or hearers only. James continues on right after he said that they're set on fire by hell. He says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The language here should remind us of the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 26 of Genesis, it says this, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, And in those words, we see that James is echoing that idea that all kinds of beasts and creatures that God has created have been tamed and can be tamed by mankind, but there's still a wild animal on the loose. It's our tongue. No man can tame the tongue. Remember that from verse 2 and 8? James said in verse 2 that if any man can tame the tongue... He's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. But in verse 8, he's saying, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Which animal in Genesis chapter 1 does that remind you of? It's the serpent. A restless evil full of deadly poison. Again, the tongue is set on fire by hell. Feeling encouraged this morning? This is a way to never get invited back. (laughs) In such a dismal picture, we need hope. And we're going to find that. Just hold on. But James continues to just rub our face in this. As he goes on, he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. 
One of the dangers, again, of being in a worship setting like this, being among a community of people like this, is that we can raise our hands and raise our voices and praise God and exalt His name. And then we can get in the car and yell at our kids on the way home. I know this because I've done that. James has one concluding point to that. He says, my brothers and sisters... It ought not to be this way. This is not God's desire for us. James then just drives the point home even further. He says this. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Of course the answer is no. A spring that did that would be completely unreliable. It would be dangerous in fact. If you try to drink salt water, you're going to die. Be completely unpredictable. Not something you can trust. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The tongue speaks according to its source. It speaks according to its kind. And that is the key point to take away from what James is saying here in this chapter. That the tongue has a source. It's not just operating on its own. It's not an independent, autonomous agent. But the tongue is deeply connected to something deeper and something far more profound and spiritual than we may realize. You know when you go to the doctor and they ask you to stick out your tongue? Well, I've wondered, like, what's going on with that? So I confirmed it on the internet. And what the internet tells me The doctor asks you to do that because the tongue can show you symptoms of deeper things going inside the body. Let's go back now to those words that we read before, before the sermon, spoken by Jesus, when he says this in Matthew. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. The author and pastor Paul David Tripp says, There is no greater argument for your need of grace than what comes out of your mouth. Here's the crux of the matter. That in order for our tongue to be tamed, first our heart has to be tamed. Do you see what's going on here? Why it's such a big deal in terms of the tongue and our our mouth and the words that we speak? Not only can we lift up or tear down the people around us by our words, but the tongue also reveals what's going on inside of our own hearts. Another really smart person named Douglas Moo, who's a commentator on James, says, like Jesus, James sees a person's speech as a barometer of his spirituality. It reveals what's in the heart. This is why our words are so significant. Because they tell us, they they reveal to us what's going on. How's your walk with the Lord? Well, let me ask you, how are the words coming out of your mouth? They reveal something about your own spirituality. James had said just earlier, 
my brothers, these things ought not to be so. So we might ask the question, how should things be then? The Bible's full of all kinds of different commands, visions of what our language should look like. I mean, give you just a couple here. I mean, we could point to so many others, but Proverbs 15.1, for example, says this, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 16.24 says this, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. We could go on and on with all kinds of other examples about what our language should be like. But what we need is not just these commands. What we need is something far deeper. We need a transforming work of God. If only a perfect man does not stumble in what he says, then shouldn't we look to the only perfect man? Think about the example that we remembered of just a few weeks ago of of looking back to the events of Holy Week. Think about the events of that week alone because we'll see in it the difference between human words and God-inspired words. We see, for example, on Palm Sunday, the words that were spoken by the crowds when they said in John 12, 15, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. And then just a few days later, we hear the crowd saying, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Jesus, after being reviled and mocked and beaten and crucified, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus had a perfectly tame tongue because he had a perfectly pure heart. And because Jesus went to the cross for us, we too can have hearts and tongues that have been tamed by his grace. And that is the key point. That in order for our tongues to be tamed, first our hearts have to be tamed by God's grace. So let me ask you again. How have your words been lately? And if you're even like kind of shamed to think about that, let me just encourage you. Only a perfect man does not stumble in what he says. And there's only one perfect man. But there is hope for us who are imperfect because the perfect man is making us perfect. If we will follow him, if we will trust in his grace, if we will trust in his transforming power. We have the opportunity to do that this morning. We have the opportunity to renew our hope and our trust in his transforming work. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've never done that before. You don't even know what this kind of grace looks like or how to get it, how to find it. If that's where you're at, I would love to talk with you or Colbert or one of the other elders or part of the staff team here would love to talk with you. There's no way to tame the tongue without first taming our hearts. If you're here this morning and you're thinking about maybe a way that your own words have hurt another person, this could be an opportunity for you to apologize, to seek forgiveness with that person, 
Or maybe somebody has offended you, hurt you by their words towards you. Let this be an opportunity as, you're, as you've experienced God's grace to offer grace and forgiveness to them. Our words matter because our words point to our hearts. And Jesus is here to give us hope precisely for that very reason so that our hearts would be tamed by his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that you give us even in a passage that's really hard to hear, even in a passage that feels like we're just getting punched in the gut over and over again. Lord, thank you for the fact that we have the hope of knowing that your grace is greater than our own sin, that your grace is greater than the impurity of our own hearts, that, God, that you delight in taming our tongues by first taming our hearts. God, thank you um, for just the goodness of what you call us to, Lord. Even as we fall short of the standard that you require, we know that because of Christ, that we have all that we need, that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the end. So, Lord, it's in that hope that we proclaim your name, that we celebrate you, that we rejoice in what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do in our lives. And, God, I pray for the discussions now that as we sit at the table with each other and talk about these truths, God, that you would just continue to do your work. Father, that we would not leave here um, hopeless, but that we would have the great hope of the gospel, of just knowing your grace is at work among us. So God, we give you the glory for this work. We proclaim it and celebrate it, knowing, God, that you are so good and that you love us so much to give us your son as our great hope. And we pray this, Lord, in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, well, if you are here for the first time, we're sitting at tables together this morning because we do a discussion after the sermon. We just think that Talking about the sermon right after the sermon is a good way to digest what you've just heard. So we're going to engage in that. If you're new, though, and a little uncomfortable with that idea, it's okay to just listen. That's perfectly fine. And uh, we hope that these discussions will help stimulate some conversation for you. And we'll just take the next few minutes to do that together. Thanks. So much to dig into from that word this morning. Thanks so much, Perry. And as he said, we, we have an advocate um, before God, our Savior Jesus, who uh, not only forgives us uh, for ways that we've fallen short in the past, as we talked about, uh, but also through his Spirit empowers us uh, into the future uh, by his grace and by his good news. And uh, every week here at Missio Day, we want to remember that. We want to remember that because I don't know about you, but... You know, you, you need to remember, you get to about Tuesday, if you're doing really well, Tuesday afternoon, and um, need to remember that you have a Savior, and you have a God who loves you, and a God who's pursuing you, and uh, the way that our Savior Jesus gave us to remember that was to come to the table every week, and uh, remember what He did for us, remember His body and His blood shed for us, and that's what we're going to do. Uh, you don't need to be a member here at Missio Day to come to the table today. If you believe in Christ, uh, we invite you to come. 
then take with us at one of the various uh, stations, one over here, one over there, uh, around the room today. Uh, And as we respond with these songs, uh, we just invite you to go as the Lord leads to one of those places to take uh, the Lord's table together today. We'll respond that way at the table. We'll respond uh, in song. You can respond if you brought a gift today to Missio Day. The giving box is there uh, by the ramp. You can respond in that way. Uh, And if you'd like prayer today, if you'd like to respond... um, uh, by having someone pray for you. There'll be folks back here in the in the back right corner, my right, uh, who are here and happy to pray with you today as we respond. So let's just make this a time of, of responding to what God has said in his word today. Let's stand together and we'll sing and you go to the table and uh, we'll respond to our Lord this morning.